From WUFTFM, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so happy to welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Chris Lanier. And we're going to be talking today about the role of veterinarians in the military. And we're recording this show actually on December 7th. This is Pearl Harbor Day, so maybe uh, slightly appropriate to have this discussion today. So welcome back to the program, Dr. Lanier. I'm, re- I'm really glad to have you here, especially with this topic, which is one that we've never had on the show before and one that I think is a very interesting one. Thank you for being with me. Well, thank you for having me, Dana. It's a pleasure to be back. The military, the United States military, that is, and the, the branches of military service I- employ I mean, absolutely, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people, surely, right? Maybe even more than 100,000 people, probably. I don't even have the exact number. And these include, of course, all the active military personnel in in uniform, uh, but also a number of civilians as well. Uh, Tell me about the role of like the veterinarian in the military, uh, do they exist in, in all the different branches of the service in, in many different settings and locations? Well, the principal branch that has veterinary services and veterinarians is the United States Army. That was the branch in which I served. Um, I served as a veterinarian for 20 years, and prior to veterinary school, I served for three years. Uh, which is where I became aware of veterinarians in the military. In the quote-unquote old days, uh, veterinarians used to be in the Air Force and the Army. And back around 1980, the services consolidated all the veterinary services under the United States Army. And the Air Force still has some veterinarians, but there are very few. And they serve in a public health preventive medicine type role. The vast majority of veterinarians on active duty or reserve duty uh, in uniform are in the Army. Hmm. What role does the do animals serve in the United States military? Well, the first and most obvious role that uh, you see from a public relations standpoint are the military working dogs. And these are the dogs detecting explosives. Um, And in different capacities, they also serve as uh, narcotics or drug detection dogs um, to help arrest uh, illicit activities that may be going on on or around military installations. And all of these dogs, regardless of their specialty, are certified uh, as patrol dogs, uh, which means they can... um, if necessary, they can apprehend suspects, chase down and apprehend suspects, in addition to their specialized roles. Their most obvious and visible role uh, in the most recent conflicts was as explosive detection dogs. Uh, they were used off-leash and on-leash uh, to detect uh, improvised explosive devices, weapons caches, and in some instances, even track persons of interest uh, in combat theaters. So that's kind of it in a nutshell in terms of uh, the animal mission side of it. Another uh, that I neglected to mention are the caisson horses that are used at Arlington National Cemetery in funeral processions for veterans who are being laid to rest at Arlington. Uh, Those animals actually fall under our care, uh, the United States Veterinary Corps' care. 
Yes, I, I suppose it's been uh, some time since the army has had uh, cavalry horses, I imagine. Yes, it has been. Uh, there are still some of those horses uh, maintained in a ceremonial role, uh, sort of as unis, unit mascots for uh, the cavalry units that still exist. Most of them, of course, are air mobile, air cavalry units, you know, where the uh, helicopters, attack helicopters, have taken on the role of the horses. Uh, but still, there are some that are maintained in a ceremonial uh, posture, and we take care of them as well. Is there any indication as to how many veterinarians and how many animals exist within the United States Armed Forces? Well, I've been retired for about six years now. And when I retired on active duty, there were about 450 veterinary corps officers, which is to say uh, officers holding uh, doctor of veterinary medicine degrees or the equivalent. Um, and there are at least as many probably in the reserve and national guard, if not a few more actually than are on active duty. Uh, and then there are also warrant officer corps, uh, which are specialists normally in food inspection, uh, and food safety and food security. And then there's the enlisted branches, which are composed of food uh, inspection and safety soldiers and uh, animal care technical soldiers, which are roughly equivalent to veterinary technicians that you would see in a veterinary clinic. Let's talk a little bit about the recruiting uh, process here, because I have to suspect that they're the military with, you know, it's many thousands and thousands of uh, servicemen and women uh, must seek out veterinarians the same way it seeks out talented individuals with other skills. This is true. Uh, every year there is an inevitable amount of turnover. People retire, people leave the military to seek other opportunities. Uh, so there is a consistent rolling need uh, for new veterinarians in the inventory, and in particular, veterinarians who have specific skills, such as comparative medicine, research and development backgrounds. Those people are not easily grown within the military, so sometimes they have to be recruited from the civilian ranks. Uh, but ordinarily, the majority of recruiting that goes on are officers coming in at the entry level, which is to say new graduate veterinarians who are looking for career opportunities within the military, uh, people who have been in private practice, uh, who have decided that private practice uh, no longer holds the fascination it did coming out of school, or for pragmatic reasons, they just decide they no longer want to be uh, veterinary practitioners in the civilian sector, and so they choose to uh, pursue a career in the military. And <clears throat> that's how they enter the recruiting pipeline, such as it is. Yeah. So th this this is this is fascinating. So a, a new veterinarian might attend, say, a veterinary school, uh, of which there are you know several across the United States, including here in Gainesville, Florida. And I can recall being a, a much younger fellow and having encounters with military recruiters. Now this was uh, you know long ago when you know there was 
nothing uh, really significant, uh, you know, there were no significant military engagements to speak of. So it was a, a pretty much a, a peacetime military force, uh, my recollection was. And I, I didn't really consider um, joining the military, but I do remember being approached by recruiters. Do those same kind of recruiters a- approach graduates of, of medical, of um, veterinary schools? They do. Uh, we do have local Army Medical Department recruiting uh, non-commissioned officers, which is to say senior sergeants, uh, who work within the medical department. They're not necessarily affiliated with the Veterinary Corps. Uh, there are seven medical branches uh, within the Army Medical Department, uh, dentists, optometrists, veterinarians, uh, medical doctors, and so forth, and the Veterinary Corps being one of them. And these recruiters do have a quota uh, of uh, veterinary officers and other officers of other specialties that they do need to recruit. And so there is a local uh, recruiting office here in Gainesville uh, with those individuals, and they do approach the school and offer their services in case anyone is interested. It's not, it's more of a proactive stance. They make it known that they are available to discuss these opportunities uh, it's not so much, um, you know, body snatching or anything like that. They leave their business cards. They get up in front of the first-year classes and present themselves and say, hey, this is me. This is where I am. Uh, if you are interested in a career in the United States military as a veterinarian, come and talk to me. And uh, that's the posture most of them take. Uh, and then on career days and other specialty days, of course, they attend those and uh, interact with anybody who might have any questions about it. And for veterinarians who have already been in practice for some time, who maybe even have some specialized uh, skills uh, and certifications and so forth, uh, does the mili- how does the military seek them out? Or do they, or do those veterinarians tend to seek out the military? It's usually the latter. They tend to seek out a recruiter uh, or start asking questions about where the nearest recruiting office is, or they reach out to uh, active duty authorities uh, to who may actually uh, be in their area uh, if they happen to live in proximity to a military installation. Of course, with the Internet these days, a lot of that information is a lot more readily available about how you can reach out to a local uh, medical department recruiter. Uh, so often it's they seek out the recruiter instead of the other way around. So a veterinarian who is, say, recruited by the military, will that person, uh, that person will still presumably have to go through some other kind of training afterwards, just as any anybody who's joining the military would. But does this person uh, in, enter as a an officer? That's correct. Uh, if you hold a doctor of veterinary medicine degree or the equivalent, Um, you are eligible to enter onto active service as a commissioned officer. And just as medical doctors or anyone else with a professional degree, you enter a little bit higher up on the ladder um, because you receive credit for your professional training, uh, about four years' worth of credit, which in the military is the equivalent of skipping the first lieutenant and the second lieutenant ranks. Uh, you start as a second lieutenant ordinarily, promoted to first lieutenant, and then the rank after that is captain. 
uh, and a professional officer, an officer who holds a professional degree, would enter active service as a captain. Okay. Well, I mean, so so already there, there's you know that, that's something to be said, and and uh, I mean, you know, you'd much rather be entering as a captain than you know, say a a, a sergeant uh, is as good as a sergeant is. You know, I mean, that's a pretty good enlisted rank. Um, what? Does that probably enhances the the army's ability to recruit for these positions? Then it does. It uh, provides some financial incentive. You come in a little bit higher than entry level, uh, which is by virtue of your professional training, uh, a privilege that they grant is that you come in a little bit higher up on the uh, food chain, as it were, and. Uh, there are a number of other benefits as well that make it attractive. Of course, you get uniform stipends. You get uh, housing allowance stipends. If you're a specialist uh, in a boarded, uh, a boarded in a specialty, then uh, perhaps you can get board certification pay and those sorts of things. And then there's a uh, pretty generous um, leave stipend about 30 days a year, uh, those things are thrown out as um, <clears throat> enticements to enter active service uh, for those who are so inclined. And uh, yes, coming in, making a little more money uh, definitely doesn't hurt uh, the Army's chances of recruiting people. And I realize this portion of the program, we've largely been speaking about kind of uh, some of the the incentives and the, and the benefits of, of joining. But one that strikes me as being not insignificant in any way, shape or form is, you know, the, the potential career opportunities within the military probably are very attractive to a lot of people who see the opportunity to you know, do say 20 years of service and then enjoy what, you know, by contemporary standards would would certainly count as very good retirement benefits. Is that the case? Yes, uh, that is the case. Now, things have changed a bit since I was on active duty. I retired under the uh, previous uh, way of doing things where if you serve a certain number of years, 20 years as a minimum, 20 to 30 years, uh, you receive a pension. Uh, and that's a guaranteed pension, and it's based off your number of years of service, and it's a percentage of your pay at the time at which you retired. Uh, the Army has since gone to a different system. Uh, it's a bit like um, the civilian 401k system where even if you decide to leave the military after five or 10 years, not serve the uh, statutory 20 years that would be considered the minimum for retirement, you're investing in this 401k system along the way so that when you leave, you don't just leave empty handed. You at least have your 401k savings. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been a big change, uh, actually, that I thought, uh, I don't know how it has affected recruiting, but I thought it actually might be a boon uh, to people who would be interested in the military in the short term, that they don't just leave empty-handed. They would actually leave with some savings that have been set aside. Yes. Uh, and also the access to VA health care, um, presumably for yourself and, and maybe dependents, uh, a spouse, perhaps? Yes. Yes. You do have medical benefits. Of course, they're free while you're on active duty. Uh, unless you go uh, are referred out to a civilian provider, 
uh, or choose to go out to a civilian provider outside of the military network. Uh, but the military healthcare network is very good. Um, and I and my family received uh, care as good as I could have gotten anywhere while I was on active service. And now that I'm retired, uh, I am eligible to seek uh, care through the uh, military, which is called TRICARE. Uh, it's uh, administered through the Humana system. Humana has a military wing. And also through the Veterans Administration, if you uh, are rated uh, for certain um, disabilities that you incurred as a result of your military service. This, this, I mean, all of this is completely fascinating, fascinating to me, but it sounds to me like there are really, uh, and I don't mean this to even sound like a commercial for, for doing this, uh, because, you know, obviously I'm not somebody who will ever be a veterinarian in the military, but it does seem to me uh, that for folks who, you know, would be interested in a, in a military career to begin with, but have, you know, also uh, wanted to be veterinarians, that the opportunities uh, in, for service in the United States military um, are are nothing to sneeze at, really. No, they're not. And of course, like any other job, it has, you know, its pros and its cons. It's not for everybody. Uh, you have to go in understanding uh, that the military is, as uh, it was once described to me, um, a more strict democratic society within a democratic society. Uh, there are certain rules and um, uh, ways to conduct yourself within the military society that are a bit more stringent, not as stringent as they once were, uh, but they're different uh, from living out uh, in, uh, in society in general. The military has become a lot more like uh, civilian sector. Um, it has softened its image over the years, but still it's a different way of life. It's a good way of life. If you choose to embrace it, we, my family and I, we had a wonderful time. We got to travel around and see places uh, in the world that I would never have imagined seeing uh, when I was a younger man and never really even considered. Uh, but uh, because of the military uh, and the opportunities that came my way that I chose to take, uh, and it, of course, it's always a choice. Uh, there is a certain amount of time that you do have to serve um, in order to be offered these opportunities. But uh, I wouldn't trade them for anything. It was a wonderful life. Well, you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Chris Lanier. And we're talking about the role of veterinarians in the U.S. military. A short break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm so happy to have back on the program today Dr. Chris Lanier from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. And we're talking about the role of the veterinarian in the military. And Dr. Lanier, it, when you were in the military and uh, in you know active service, uh, you probably were stationed um, in various places. I don't know if you moved around a whole lot as an officer, um, but were you um, were you stationed overseas? And does the United States use veterinarians in overseas installations and bases? Uh, 
Yes, actually, the United States still maintains, uh, not as robust as it once was, but still a significant presence overseas, uh, both in Europe, uh, in um, Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, uh, and in the Far East, uh, in Japan, and uh, still in Korea, although not in the numbers it once was. In Europe, most of our forces are still in Germany, um, because we're very closely allied with Germany, and they're spread about in other allied nations, NATO nations, uh, over in Europe. But we still do have a, a role over there, and the Veterinary Corps actually does have a role in supporting those forces over there, uh, because we serve a lot of roles that are not uh, necessarily filled by the host nation, uh, but the United States forces, uh, you know, we support the United States forces that are in place in those locations. The uh, veterinarians who serve uh, overseas, they are, uh, as you say, in, in different places all over the world. The nature of the work that they're doing is probably dependent upon the operational needs at the time. And those must vary and shift. When you were uh, spending your 20 years in the military, did your role evolve or were you doing pretty consistent work? It does evolve over time. Uh, as a new graduate veterinarian, your work is primarily in what I would classify as a blended practice is a term I like to use because I've heard others use it, so I'm borrowing it for our purposes. And what I mean by that is you spend a significant amount of time in clinical practice, clinical medicine, which coming right out of school is what a lot of young veterinarians want to do. They want to be practitioners. They want to get their hands dirty and learn how to practice on uh, live animals, uh, be they military working animals or animals owned um, by military families, which is also another sector uh, that we're responsible for. And the other part of that blended practice is the preventive medicine, largely food safety and security mission. It's a USDA-like mission uh, that we're responsible for both in the United States, where it's less of a necessity but still required uh, and it's especially important abroad where there is no USDA. Uh, and it's even more important in more austere areas, such as uh, our most recent uh, forays into the Middle East, where there is very little infrastructure in general, much less for food safety. So the role of uh, the veterinary officer in those settings is even more important. Yeah. Can you, I mean, can you describe what a day's work might be like for some of these individuals uh, who are veterinarians in the kind of food safety mission? Yes. Well, uh, depending on the job and depending on the location, uh, your job may be more clinical medicine, less food safety or vice versa. And in the food safety <clears throat> aligned positions, uh, it really is very much like a USDA-type mission. That's the best analogy I can draw. And the USDA's responsibilities uh, are many and varied, but one of the more visible ones is in food security. And our responsibility as veterinarians 
uh, in the military is to ensure, first and foremost, that the subsistence that the government procures by contract is up to standard. Uh, it is being produced, and the government is getting its money worth, money's worth, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, and in so doing, we inspect the foodstuffs being received at uh, the point of receipt, which would be a military commissary, which is the equivalent of a military installations grocery store. Uh, and also, the uh, officers and NCOs and warrant officers will go out and uh, inspect the source plants, uh, the uh, points of origin for these products to make sure that they are manufacturing uh, their products in a sanitary way and in a way that is in accordance with uh, United States federal guidelines uh, to make sure, again, that the government is getting its money's worth. And if more often than not, these places um, are in conformance because they enjoy having the government contracts. Uh, and if they're not, we have to call their attention to that and tell them how they need to uh, get better so that they continue to have that contract. So these are vendors that are not necessarily in the mainland United States and the food is sent to ever to where it's going. These might be suppliers that are actually located overseas. Well, when in overseas locations, they are. Um, if I were working in Germany and uh, my commissary was receiving uh, food products from a, <clears throat> a host nation a supplier, such as a dairy, a dairy is a good example. Uh, we would have to go to that dairy, um, and a lot of the dairies uh, are scattered around Europe, but there are a fair number of them in the Netherlands and in Denmark uh, in particular, and we would have to uh, inspect that dairy and make sure that they were meeting the guidelines set forth by our government. Now, of course, they have governments also, and they have government guidelines. But very often, the United States, um, <clears throat> the United States regulations are a bit more stringent. Actually, wow, that's fascinating, um, right? Because I would have expected a you know a dairy in the Netherlands or Germany has to abide by whatever EU standards or standards that they might have in in those countries, which certainly are going to, you know, meet uh, all of the, you know, basic requirements for providing healthful food and, and safe food because they're, you know, selling to the public. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting that the United States has standards that might exceed um, the food safety standards in some other places that, that we might consider, you know, developed, developed countries. Yes, actually, they, in many cases, they are very close to equivalent. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a testimony to the, to the EU standards and the EU getting together and establishing a lot of very stringent guidelines. And overseas in particular, and I'm, I'm using Europe specifically as an example because that's where I spent all of my time overseas was in Germany. Um, their standards are very good. Um, it's not to say that their standards are not good they, uh, or, or lesser. Uh, it's just to say that our standards in some ways uh, are a bit more specific. I see. Um, and, uh, and in some cases, we actually, uh, overseas, we use an amalgam of our regulations and their regulations, you know, just to, just to not send the wrong message. It's like, well, our, our standards are higher than yours. Sure. Like, well, that's not necessarily the case. Our standards are just different. Sure. Um, 
but they may be nearly equivalent for uh, uh, for the for the sake of the product being produced. And and I would imagine, you know, the, the sort of uh, famously efficient German, uh, you know, suppliers would probably, if they've had these kinds of contracts with the U.S. military, would probably be pretty, I'm just guessing here, I'm speculating, you can correct me because I've certainly never been there to, to do what you did. I would I would guess that they're pretty aware of what benchmarks they need to reach in order to satisfactorily, um, you know, supply uh, the United States military? Oh, yes. And there's a good bit of communication that um, occurs uh, before a a provider is placed on what's called the um, approved sources list. Uh, normally, they will reach out to the U.S. government and ask how they can be uh, a member of this list uh, to provide subsistence to uh, the U.S. forces. And oftentimes it will involve a series of um, liaisons, inspections, you know, going out and meeting the people at the plant, having a look at their facilities. And uh, if, uh, if they are, uh, as many facilities are, if they're a first-class operation, you know, an, a large industrial-type production facility, they're really not going to have any problems meeting those standards. It's uh, the ones who may require a bit more intensive uh, work, uh, but very often do end up as approved sources are the sort of what I would call mom and pop operations. Um, you know, the meat suppliers, uh, people who provide produce. Um, you just have to take a closer look because those are high risk items and uh, just have to make sure that they are, are meeting the standards that we would uh, have somebody who is a meat producer or a produce importer meet over in the United States. Yeah. And very often they do. Yeah. That, it, uh, it all, it all makes a lot of sense now. Uh, you know, is, is, was language ever a barrier for you in, in, in these missions? <laughs> uh, we're fortunate to be provided translators, host nation translators uh, who accompany you on these visits. Uh, I am ashamed to say that my German is not what it should be after having spent eight years over there uh, of my career. I can find my way around uh, in a city or on a road map, you know, following the road signs or at a train station or in a restaurant. Uh, but conversationally, uh, I fall woefully short. So yeah. we're fortunate to have host nation translators. Uh, well, that, yeah, that is that is wonderful. I mean, in, in the variety of supplies that the United States military might need to source from from an overseas supplier, um, the the number of different items must be almost limitless in in terms of uh, you know what it is that we we might be talking about, right? I mean, the the military probably uses more of a lot of specific things. Um, but were there were there suppliers that were supplying very specific items that were somewhat unusual in in any cases that you can recall? A lot of times, those items are things that um, you know are a particular type of uh, seafood or fish uh, product, uh, specific types of dairy or bakery products um, that are more commonly encountered in Europe. Uh, or other parts of the world. Uh, I was not in Asia, so I'm sure they have similar, um, you know, similar unique items in those areas. 
but usually it was things along that line. Some some particular type of uh, you know meat or sausage product or fish, uh, a dairy or bakery product. Uh, the produce um, produce type items were very often. Uh, in line with a lot of what we encounter here in the States. Uh, occasionally there would be unique items. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, again, you just have to adapt your, uh, have to adapt your, you have to do a little bit more research uh, into the regulations governing those products uh, to make sure that they're acceptable. And in, and again, in most cases they are uh, because they're being produced in accordance with the way they would be produced in the United States. Was Sometimes there... it takes a little more work. Yeah. Was there a good deal of training that you had to go and, and, and your, you know, your peers in this service would have had to undergo? Because coming out of veterinary school, um, you probably weren't necessarily equipped to go and, and tour different facilities that are uh, supplying food products. Yes, that's part of your initial training uh, when you enter onto active duty as a veterinary corps officer. First thing they teach you to do uh, is they assume that Everybody who's coming in doesn't know how to put their uniform on, has never been in the military before. So everybody starts out at a very elementary level. Uh, There are some people, such as uh, was the case with me, who have been in the military before. So this initial phase is is more of a, you know, grin and bear it. I already know how to lace up my boots and put my uniform on. Uh, And then there is a subsequent phase where you learn the specifics, not only of how to conduct animal medicine operations uh, within the military framework, but also the food safety and security realm. There's a very intensive uh, set of uh, instruction blocks on that field because, yes, the vast majority of veterinary programs do not emphasize uh, food safety and security. It's not a point of emphasis unless people choose uh, to go out and do elective work in those fields. Yeah. Um, and um, that tends to be a smaller percentage of students, uh, but many programs, um, it's not a major topic within the curriculum. So yes, there is a lot of training on that coming in. Well, this is such a fascinating topic, Dr. Lerner. We've got to take one more break, and when we come back, we're going to have more with Dr. Christopher Lanier from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I want to remind you all that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, back right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So glad to have Dr. Christopher Lanier here with me this afternoon. And we're talking about the role of the veterinarian in the United States military. Uh, Dr. Lanier, let's talk about sort of the clinical operations and, and what veterinarians do in the military. I imagine that, you know, working in a veterinary clinic setting, uh, whether you're in the military or in civilian practice, has many similarities, but there are probably differences as well. Yes. Uh, the six years, roughly, that I was in clinical practice, engaged in clinical practice in the military, very similar. A lot of similarities to what you would do day to day in a general practice setting. Um, you would Uh, administer a lot of physical exams, a lot of medications, a lot of immunizations, largely preventive care. Um, When I first came into the military as a veterinarian in the 1990s, 
we were doing less population control, which is to say spaying and neutering uh, of animals. And over time, it evolved to where um, the restrictions on that loosened and we were allowed to pursue more of that work. Uh, and really, I would say the biggest difference between uh, civilian veterinary practice and a military veterinary practice is, uh, number one, uh, you fill out a lot more forms. In the military, there's always a lot of paperwork involved still um, that uh, you use to track everything that you do, medications dispensed, inventory, um, <clears throat> you know, the medical records that you fill out. Now, a lot of this has shifted to electronic over the years, um, but uh, there is a, a, I wouldn't say more regimented way of doing things, but uh, there's a piece, there's a form for everything. There's a piece of paper for everything we used to say. And uh, that's one thing that takes getting used to. And uh, of course, there are a variety of regulations that you have to follow and you have to be familiar with. Again, not dissimilar from civilian practice uh, where you have to follow local, state, uh, and federal guidelines. Uh, but at this case, in this case, it's mostly federal guidelines that you're following because you're on a federal installation. Uh, so um, you do have to be mindful of state and local um, requirements, uh, but largely you're following federal guidelines. But it's very much like clinical practice would be uh, out in the civilian realm. Was the was the billing a little bit less complicated? I would say it was uh, <laughs> because <laughs> normally uh, you know where to find the people who are paying the bills. And, um, of course, there are always issues with uh, folks who have financial challenges. Uh, and in, um, in, I guess, the time that I came in, uh, you could deal with that a bit more. You had a, a bit less freedom dealing with uh, how to uh, set up arrangements, payment arrangements, those sorts of things with people. But nowadays, I think now with the advent of uh, electronic uh, record keeping and bookkeeping, I think there's a lot more flexibility in uh, allowing people to establish payment plans and accept uh, pet insurance plans, which really weren't a big thing when I first came out into practice. And I think those are good things. Uh, but billing was less of an issue, no. I mean, normally because you knew where to find the people who were coming to visit you. Yeah, I mean, the animals that you were seeing, um, these could be pets of, of other um, service members, or would they often be animals that the that I don't know their owner was, so to speak, the United States. The um, majority of the pets that we saw day to day were owned by uh, civilian, uh, excuse me, by military family. Mm -hmm. um, they would dogs, cats, uh, occasional exotic species. We would see the odd ferret or bird. Um, there was always something that kept things interesting, um, but uh, and also retired civilian personnel uh, or federal civilian personnel, uh, Department of Defense civilian personnel uh, were allowed uh, to bring their pets in as well as government employees. Oh, okay. And, and so that was that was the majority of what we saw. Uh, and then, of course, if we had military dog um, kennels, 
on our installation or on nearby installations, we would be responsible for their care as well. That was on a more periodic basis. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I think that the the image that many people maybe have in mind when they think about veterinarians dealing with animals and say, you know, on a base somewhere, you're maybe thinking about like the, the dogs that the military police might have with them or something like that. But that represents, it sounds like, um, a smaller percentage than just the companion animals that personnel might have um, as any person who's listening to this program might have. That's that's correct in general. I mean, in some places, there's a smaller, uh, smaller installations. Uh, there is a smaller privately owned animal mission. Um, and so perhaps the military dog mission receives a bit more emphasis. Uh, in general, the installations where I was assigned, uh, there was a very large civilian, uh, retired civilian and active military uh, privately owned animal presence. So that was a lot of our work. And uh, I was also blessed to uh, be able to care for a lot of uh, government-owned uh, or Department of Defense-owned working dogs. And that was, that was a big thrill. That was one of the best parts of my career. These uh, might, working yeah. with those animals. Those dogs are probably extremely well-trained animals, I'm gathering, because they're doing work. Yes, they're very highly trained animals. Uh, there's a lot of... There's a lot of science in the selection and the training and the utilization of these dogs. Uh, they are the animal equivalent of Olympic athletes um, because they do a very strenuous job and they do it repetitively and they do it at a very high level, particularly in combat situations. Uh, because even when you're at your home station, um, you know, not where bullets are flying or anything like that. You're training for those situations. Um, even in a quote-unquote peacetime or safe situation, you're training for the more, the more uh, rigorous situation. And so what's asked of those animals is a lot, and their lifespan, their shelf life uh, is relatively short compared to a lot of companion animals. Uh, they work hard, and they're treated very well, um, and yes, they're very, very highly trained, well, well-bred animals. So the personnel who actually spend the most time with those animals and involved in the training and so forth, they probably develop kind of close bonds with these animals, as one might expect. Are they um, the ones who are bringing the animals to you for treatment, or do you go to them? How does that work? It's a bit of both. Uh, they will come to us, and yes, you're correct. I mean, it's very much like um, a police officer, that dog is his partner, uh, his or her partner. Mm -hmm. And they they establish and they forge a very, very tight bond, uh, very much like two people would, working together for years as uh, police officers or police detectives, uh, law enforcement officials. They, um, they will very often bring the animals to you, uh, sometimes... Uh, they're perhaps a bit more finely attuned to the animal's um, needs. And anything that goes wrong, they're calling you in the middle of the night and uh, telling you that uh, this, my dog's bleeding from his lip and you find out that he you know, chewed on a piece of wire or something. And it's not a big deal. But they have that level of devotion that they're paying that close attention um, to those animals. And uh, it's a very tight bond. It's a very unique bond. 
um, you know, brothers in arms type of thing. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it sounds like it, and, and it's it's quite understandable why that would be the case. I mean, so when when treating these animals, um, is there the range of services that are offered? You know, in a in a military base uh, somewhere else. You know, um, in 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 the world where you might have been stationed, the range of services that are are offered um, are those. S- you know, similar to what might be available to, in a veterinary clinic at, back home in the United States? Yes. Um, and that for that reason, a lot of the overseas installations are well-equipped, especially in particular the installations that do have responsibility for government-owned or military-owned animals um, <clears throat> because they are offered the entire range of what you have available. Uh, that includes medical, surgical, uh, diagnostic imaging, uh, all of the specialty services that can be provided uh, are provided. And overseas, there are usually one or two very specialized, highly specialized uh, referral type hospitals, very much like the University of Florida is. Uh, and they're called um, <clears throat> veterinary centers that have usually have a board certified specialist or specialists uh, that are capable of administering a higher or more advanced level of uh, surgical and medical uh, care to those animals. And those are used in those situations if what the dog uh, needs exceeds the capability of the, uh, of the local provider. Well, I'm thinking too, you know, of the, of these, you know, government owned animals, these highly trained, you know, very highly skilled animals that have, you know, work to do, and, and a lot has gone into their training and selection and so forth. I mean, these are these are valuable assets, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, right? So the, the, the availability of treatment to them probably spare no expense in, in keeping them healthy. That is correct. Um, the, from our standpoint, that's what we tend to do. Uh, the people who own the animals, obviously, they have the final say. The, the people who own them are, um, you know, the military police uh, agencies more often than not. And in, in, uh, again, in previous times, uh, sometimes you would encounter some of these people who were a little reluctant to spend a lot of money on these dogs. But as times have evolved, uh, they saw them as um, an asset that could be replaced. And as time has evolved, their thinking has come around to, hey, these animals are not so easily replaced. I might as well, um, you know, invest in what I have on hand. And so they very often do um, do what is necessary to make sure that these dogs are taken care of. Well, Dr. Lanier, we're right up against the clock, but I want to thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation about a topic that we've never had on this program before. In the more than 10 years of hosting this program, I've never really had an involved discussion about the role of the veterinarian in the military. So thank you so much uh, for bringing this topic today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, glad to do it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Dana. Animal Airwaves Live is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. That was Dr. Chris Lanier, a veterinarian at the University of Florida College of veterinary medicine. I want to thank him as well as Sarah Carey for her help with the program. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Animal Airways Live. Bye-bye.